Join me in prayer, family, before we share God's word tonight. Lord, thank you again as we gather and we are people of the Lord that you provided your word for us, both the Old and New Testament, that we can see your hand at work in history, Lord. Know your promises to us and your names, Lord. Know who you are and who you call us to be as your people. Thank you, Lord, for Pastor Mike today as he comes to share with us what you've laid upon his heart from the book of Mark. Lord, I, I pray for every person here. Lord, let the worries of the week and the concerns of things around them, Lord, will fall away as they hear your word preached, rightly divided. So I pray for every one of us, Lord, that you would speak to us as we know you are. And that your word will not come back void as you promised it will not, Lord. May you reclaim those promises, knowing, Lord, you are powerful, and you are good, and you are in control. Lord, we all here, are all here, by your power and command and foresight. I want to speak to us all. The changes to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. Welcome, family. It's good to be here. Glad to be joined with you today in worship and in the opening of God's Word to sit under the hearing and teaching of it. Amen. Would you grab your Bibles today, turn and open them to Mark chapter 9. We'll be in verses 14 through 29 today. In a very interesting circumstance between Jesus and and the scribes, his disciples, a very distraught father, and a young boy, a young man who is severely oppressed by Satan. And uh, may God bless us today through his word. Amen. Uh, stand, if you would, with me. We're going to read these verses out loud together. Verses 14 through 29, at the end of that reading, I will say that this is the word of the Lord. I invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Let's begin. And when they had come to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my, my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. 
And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered to the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Praise God. I um, <clears throat> just asked for the Lord's help this morning. Trust that he is able. Amen. Amen. That's exactly where we're at today. Um, today we are in our 24th week in the gospel according to Mark. We are just past the halfway point in this gospel. Uh, here in chapter 9 verses 14 through 29. And we come to this passage about uh, Jesus and his disciples, the scribes, we know that there's already been this kind of tension that has been building between them. Uh, the scribes, of course, continually coming. Remember these guys, uh, likely still the same guys. They, they are making their rounds from Jerusalem, seeking Jesus out wherever he may be found, trying to catch him out, trying to find something. And we've already seen that they are not uh, beyond picking on Jesus' disciples. Already we saw them kind of uh, come against them when they were starting to um, uh, mess uh, with the, the, the grain. They were eating without washing their hands. And they come to Jesus and say, why do you know you're disciples? And they're picking on the disciples. And now Jesus had removed himself for a short period of time with Peter, James, and John. They went out on the mountain to pray there on what is now known as the Mount of Transfiguration because it was there 
that the veil was, as it were, uh, removed, and the glory of our Christ was made evident uh, to Peter and to James and to John, uh, so much so that there was a, a metamorphosis of Jesus' external uh, uh, observable character. Uh, he did not become a different person, uh, but rather what who he was was made evident and clear by this transfiguration. Not only that, but Peter, James, and John witnesses Moses and Elijah are there on the mountain with him. Were they ghosts? No, they were not. They were not ghosts. How do we know? Because God is the God of the living and not of the dead. And they were there with him in anticipation. Uh, I don't think there was any kind of like, oh, where are we? What's going on? What's happening? This was a divine moment that had been planned by the Father. It was here that the Father was going to again acknowledge his Son for his Son's sake and for the sake of the disciples to say, this is my beloved Son. And last time we said, in him I am well pleased, we heard God say. And now what does he say? He says, hear him or listen to him. That we are meant to hear Jesus. It's interesting that Mark records this because Mark records the smallest amount of Jesus' teaching from all of the Gospels. And yet it is not so much uh, the specific teachings and precepts and principles that God the Father is necessarily referring to, but rather it is take heed, pay attention as this one who is the Word of God incarnate, who speaks with authority. And what authority does the Son have, the Son has the authority that the Father has given to him. Hear him. This amazing moment. And it harkens back to a moment where one of those that were on the mountain was present at least. And the word of the Lord came. But instead of being written in the flesh, it was written on tablets of stone. And now, Jesus, who is the embodied representation of God's law, comes down off the mountain like Moses with the tablets. And if you remember when Moses comes down off the tablets, he says to Joshua, what is this? For I hear what sounds like the tumult of war. There was such a ruckus going on in the camp of the Israelites that to the ears of Moses and Joshua, it sounded like a battlefield. And now as Jesus comes down off of the Mount of Transfiguration, 
there's another tumult going on. I don't think it's an accident that these two events, at least in motif, kind of reflect one another. And Jesus comes down off the mountain. There's this tumult and there is an argument between the disciples and the scribes. Look at what it says. It says, and when they came to the disciples, so Jesus and Peter, James, and John are coming down off the mountain to join back up with the nine remaining disciples. And they saw a great crowd around them and, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? I struggled with that part of the text, especially this idea of them being amazed. I wondered, was there an afterglow in Jesus' uh, uh, personage that they were amazed by? But the more I looked at this, the more it felt like uh, some naughty little children who've been caught out. Here they are, they're arguing with the disciples. What are they arguing about? Well, obviously, the argument has something to do with the events that have transpired. And what do we find out has transpired? This man has brought his son with an unclean spirit. And what does he say? He says, Jesus, I brought him. Teacher, I brought my son to you. We know also from his testimony because Jesus specifically asked him, how long has this been going on? My son had a sore ear this morning, and so I had to ask him, like, when did that start? You know, are you telling me that because you just woke up this morning and the prospect of going to church has you looking and searching for any kind of ailment that might get you out of it? And suddenly, aha, I feel the faint, dull ache in my ear. And he said, no, Dad, it started last night. It's been hurting for a while. In other words, Dad, I've been enduring this for a while. Please help me, right? And Jesus asks this man how long this has been taking place. And the man answers him. What did he say? Since he was young. The, the emphasis in the Greek is a very young child. This has been happening. And so there's this idea that even though this is still a boy under his uh, home, under his roof, it seems that some years have passed, at least, as his son has been afflicted in this way. It's not difficult to look at the list of symptoms that he reads off and say, well, we, we recognize that is something that we might call grand mal seizures. Certainly this young man was having an epileptic fit with regular occurrence. And yet, it was not merely that this man had, this young man had epilepsy and Jesus healed him of epilepsy. There seems to be that no matter what the external manifestation that was going on, there was a dark and sinister, evil undercurrent to this situation. That the father was able to identify that this was not a mere 
sickness or disease, but rather it was in fact the oppression of the enemy. That his son didn't just have epilepsy, but his son was possessed by an evil spirit. Not only that, whenever it would seize him, it says that it throws him down, he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Not only that, but it had often cast him into the fire, verse 22, and into water to destroy him. The word waters there in the Greek seem to possibly indicate wells. That whenever this kid got around anything that could possibly uh, utterly destroy him, it would take the opportunity to try and do that. Imagine, imagine being the parent of this child. Imagine how often you, you tried to put off those doubts that there was some deeper, darker, sinister thing going on. How often he must have prayed for his child. How often he must have said, no, 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 surely it couldn't be that. It couldn't be that. It's just a coincidence. It's just a coincidence that every time he gets around fire, this thing grabs a hold of him and tries to throw him in the fire. It's just a coincidence that every time we go past the well of my father's, it tries to throw him inside and drown him. It's, it's just a coincidence, but how many times does it have to happen before the father begins to say, this, this can't merely be a coincidence. What other evidence might there have been for him that this was in fact a deeper and darker sinister activity? I have had cause to interact with those who from a young age a mother or an aunt or a grandmother, usually specifically, had sought to put hexes upon their children or grandchildren, anointing them as it were from a very young age to walk in their footsteps in witchcraft and sorcery. And those children, even as they grew up, into adults from a time of a young child into their adulthood were tormented by demonic forces that had been set upon them by those that were meant to protect them, care for them. These people sought to master those things only to find that this was nothing that could be mastered because it had, in fact, already enslaved them in bondage. And it was only through and by the power of Jesus that they were made free from those bonds and set free from the power of the wicked one. Make no mistake, we don't know why the father knew it was an evil spirit and not just epilepsy. But Mark makes it clear that what came out of this young man was not a sickness, 
but an evil spirit. So here we find the witness of this father that he had brought his son to Jesus. Now we know from the rest of the witness of scripture that Jesus was not the only one in that day that was doing exorcisms. In fact, it was quite a regular occurrence for those in the Jewish faith to seek to do exorcisms. They had their rituals that they would go through and they would try and seek to uh, remove evil spirits from people. In fact, later in the New Testament, we find in the time of Paul that there were seven sons of Sceva who saw the power of God at work in the Apostle Paul. And they perhaps observed him. They watched him as maybe he cast the demon out of someone and said, I command you in Jesus' name, come out of them. And they thought, wow, this is a new technique. This is a new strategy. And so they set about to employ this new latest and greatest application in the exorcism community. They went to go and cast a demon out of this man. And so what do they say? They say, in the name of the Jesus that Paul talks about, come out. The demon does not come out, but instead talks back. And what does he say? He says, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I've heard about. But who are you? And what does scripture say? It says that that demon-possessed man beat up. That's the nicest way of putting it. He tore up those seven sons of Sceva. Was it not the power of God that Paul was using? Yes, but it wasn't magic words. Telling a demon to come out in Jesus' name is not an incantation. It's a recognition of who has power and authority and who this demon must listen to. And yet, if you come trying to wield the name of Jesus apart from faith, you will find that your acts are empty and vain. And here we find the disciples, they were the closest ones to Jesus, and yet what happened? They could not cast this demon out. Was this surprising? It's a little surprising. Why is it surprising? It's surprising because we've already seen how that Jesus sent out the disciples in pairs, and everywhere that they went, they proclaimed the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God, and did what? They did many miracles. They healed people and cast out demons. 
You can imagine when this man came seeking Jesus, excuse me, excuse me, do you know where Jesus is? I'm trying to find Jesus. I've gone to every exorcist in the area and no one has been able to help me. My son is being tormented day after day after day. Where is Jesus? But no one thought to take him up on the mountain. They knew where Jesus was. He wasn't that far away. But instead of seeking Jesus out, what did they do? They're like, oh, hey, brother, <laughs> listen to this. You know, not that long ago, Jesus, we know Jesus. Jesus, we know Jesus. And he sent us out in pairs. And guess what? It's your lucky day. There are nine of us here today. So why don't you bring your son over this way? We'll cast that demon out. But they couldn't. They couldn't. Seeing what this demon, how this demon responded when Jesus finally showed up, we, we have no idea what happened and transpired when they tried to cast this demon out. How much this father's heart must have beat out of his chest every time this demon seized him. Every time he watched his uh, son there convulsing in this rigid state on the ground being thrown about. If you've never witnessed a grand mal seizure, it doesn't, it doesn't even have to be demonic activity. That is one of the scariest things to witness. We had this man in our church when I was young. He was over seven feet tall. He weighed over 400 pounds. He was a giant of a man. And from time to time, uh, he had grand mal seizures. We met in an old church building with old timber that built this building. And this man one day after uh, one of our services had a grand mal seizure in the foyer and he was face down uh, on the ground banging his head into the floor and he left a dent in the floor and nobody seven feet 400 pounds like nobody could control him grown men were trying to grab him and restrain him and they were being flung about he was scared imagine if that was your child how many times did he bite his tongue there's blood everywhere how many times was his body must have just been beat up and as a father every time that happens you wonder is this the last time and here he comes seeking Jesus and disciples with bravado it seems perhaps try to cast out this demon and are unable to and who knows what transpired in the meantime we know that at least enough happened that a crowd gathered around and that there was a sort of tumult that was going on and now as Jesus enters the scene it's not just the disciples and this man and this crowd 
but the scribes have come along. And what blasphemous things are they saying about the power of God now? And Jesus comes along and he asks them what they are arguing with them about. Verse 17 is interesting, isn't it? And someone from the crowd answered him. Which means what? Who is it? It's the father that brought his son. Which means that there has been such a tumult, there's so much activity that's going on, that the one who this whole thing centered around has been swallowed up by the crowd. He's been pushed back, perhaps even separated from his son. We don't even know. But as Jesus arrives on the scene, he's been relegated to the back. And again, this amazement with the crowd, they are amazed. I was able to find out that the word here that's used is something that sounds like from Mark Twain, uh, the archaic definition. They were sore amazed. Some of you imagine Tom Sawyer or Huck Finn saying when they got caught. And that's what it seems has happened here. Jesus comes on the scene. This argument is happening. There's chaos that's going on. And suddenly Jesus is there. And they were so engaged in what was happening. They didn't even notice him show up. And he's like, hey, guys, what is going on? Oh, 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 Jesus is here. Oh, and now what does it become? It becomes a race. Because you want to be the first one to say what's going on. And yet he has a question. What are you arguing about with them, with the scribes? And suddenly everyone's mouths are stopped. They don't know what to say. They might not even know. What are we arguing? All we know is that. God brought his son, and here we were, we're gonna cast out, we're gonna cast out, and just everything went chaotic. But then the father speaks up again. Someone from the crowd answered him. He's been he's been pushed back and swallowed up by the crowd. He says, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Not only has this spirit tormented his body but now his son can't even talk to him can't even tell him what's happening what's going on and he tells Jesus so I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able You remember being in elementary school, asking your teacher, teacher, can I go to the restroom? The answer my second grade teacher gave me was, I don't know, can you? My answer was like, I don't know. That's why I'm asking you, can I? I don't know, can you? 
trying to teach me what? That can had to do with ability, not permission. What she wanted me to say was, teacher, may I go? I'm asking for permission. I had the ability, I needed permission. Here, this man makes a statement about the disciples' ability. And the emphasis in the Greek is literally, they were not strong enough. They were not strong enough. They couldn't. They, they have a big can't label on them. They can't do it. They, they couldn't do it, Jesus. You wonder how long this man had heard about Jesus before bringing his son. The history of how many times approaching somebody that was supposed to be able to help and wasn't. How long did it take him? Did he, did he come running the first moment he heard about Jesus? Or did it take time? We don't know. I'm asking a hypothetical question. But you can hear in this man's answers a wavering, an unsettledness. Because what begins with they were not able ends up in a question to Jesus about his ability. If you can. If you are able, in other words, if Jesus, if you are strong enough. But before we get there, we have to deal with Jesus' words. After the man said, so I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. He answered them, verse 19. O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus' words here reflect the words of the prophets in the Old Testament. I want to read one little bit to you from Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 21. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not who have ears but hear not is that the theme we've heard in mark so far yes over and over again to the point of jesus saying what let him who has ears hear right he says do you not fear me declares the lord do you not tremble before me i place the sand as the boundary for the sea a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart, verse 23. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Instead, what? Your iniquities have turned these away. Your sins have kept good from you. 
For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men. Skipping down to verse 28, they've grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice and cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. They do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? This is the faithless generation that Jesus is speaking to in Mark chapter 9. His disciples were not strong enough. They were not able. Jesus says, bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And again, look at this. This is the kind of thing. It's not coincidence. It's not like, oh, he was going to convulse at this time on this day, no matter what happened. No, this was a wicked and evil, rebellious response to the king of all the universe. As they brought the boy to Jesus, what happens? The boy is convulsed by the spirit. He fell to the ground, rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, it seems almost like too calm for the situation. How long has this been happening to him? He says, from childhood. Letting us understand that this has been going on for years. This is not just a minor inconvenience. This has been an ongoing trial and tribulation as the oppression of the enemy has hit so close to take up residence in this father's home. He says, and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. We've talked about this so many times. There are at least three things that are required in order for us to receive help. You need someone with the authority and the ability, but also the right amount of affection to find help in time of need. Someone can have great affection for you, but not be able to do anything. That was the disciples. This man had come, they found him, Jesus wasn't there, but they were, they had affection for him, they wanted to help, it seems they tried, but what happened? They were not able. They weren't strong enough, the father says, at least in his estimation. In other words, what? That whatever power the disciples claimed to have, it seemed that the power that was possessing his son was stronger. Meaning what? Whatever faith he had coming was already beginning to deteriorate. Now Jesus has arrived, the one that he came to see originally, and he says, if you can, meaning what? If you have the ability, 
But what else? Have compassion on us. But even if Jesus had affection for this man and his son, and even if he had ability, if his authority was not greater than the spirit that was in that boy, we would still be at an impasse. Jesus said to him, if you can, Now, we know from what transpires that the compassion that this man was asking for was already present. And so Jesus is not merely saying this because he's irritated. If you, what do you mean if you can? Do you know who I am? But rather he's saying it for emphasis so that the man will not mistake that he is the one who has the ability to do exactly what it is that he needs. But not only that, he has the authority and the affections. He says something else, not only for the father, but for all those who are around him. He says all things are possible for one believes Jesus disciples were unable they were not strong enough they were a part of this faithless generation but God is able Jesus is able the father of the child again here mark using his favorite word immediately the father of the child cries out what I believe help my unbelief in other words, he's saying, what, I'm, I'm here, but I'm hanging on by a thread. I believe, help my unbelief. In other words, what? Show me that this was not all worthless. Show me that what I have put my faith in is something that is actually able and strong enough to defeat the power here because I'm slipping into oblivion. I'm slipping into the darkness. It's about to overtake me. And if you can't help me, who can? I will have to conclude that the power of the evil one is greater. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, meaning that even more people were gathering around, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, saying to it, saying to it, this is my beloved son, hear him, listen to him. Let all those under his authority bow. And Jesus doesn't have to do a dance or sing a song or do a little incantation. He doesn't have to conjure anything up. He speaks as he who has authority. And he says to the spirit, you deaf and mute spirit, 
I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And like all those that Jesus healed with unclean spirits before that, like the fever that left Peter's mother-in-law, like the leprosy that left those unclean bodies when Jesus touched them, like the death that left Jairus' daughter when he said to her, Talitha, wake up. The spirit that the disciples were not able to cast out left that little boy. But it doesn't do it quietly. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. And do you know that Mark never tells us that he's not? Can I tell you it doesn't matter? Because he who is the resurrection and the life took him by the hand, verse 27, and lifted him up, and he arose. All things are possible for one who believes. With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Where the disciples were not able, Jesus is able. I say he is able, not he was able. Why? Because he is alive. We are here today to worship a living and risen Christ who is still able. Where your own efforts have failed, where the wisdom of men and the strategies of others have failed, Jesus is still able. To reach into your life and into mine. To minister to us exactly at our point of need. To do what no one else can do. To do what time has not been able to do. To heal those things that need to be healed. To make whole those things that need to be made whole. And it does not matter how much time has passed. It doesn't matter how many scars have come along the way. Jesus is still able. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 8 says that he is able to make all grace abound to you. All grace. 
Meaning that there is grace for every part of your life and there is not one part of your life that somehow happens upon the circumstances of the timeline of your life that catches Jesus off guard. He is not going to be like the disciples who were caught off guard when Jesus came down the mountain and be sore amazed at what is happening in your life and finally have found that one thing that he is not able to do. He is able to make all grace abound to you. Not trickle, not drip, abound to wash over you for every area of your life. Romans 14 verse 4 says that he is able to make you stand. Those times of life where it feels like you are going to have your feet swept out from under you. Because while things will never catch Jesus by surprise, they do catch us by surprise. And it can happen in an instant, in a moment. All it takes is a phone call, a text message from the right person at the right time, wrong person, wrong time, however you want to look at that. And it can feel like there is just this force that is going to sweep your legs out from under you. And you are going to be carried away in the current. But Romans 14 verse 4 promises us that God is able to make us stand. Jude verse 24 it's one of our benedictions every month. You may have noticed that our benedictions change each week. One of our benedictions comes from June. And it says that God is able Not only to make you stand, but to keep you from falling. To keep you from falling. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says that he is able to save you to the uttermost. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. God, there's still these areas in my life and I believe in you, but I'm still wrestling with doubt here. And his promise is I am able to save you to the uttermost. That when we get to the end of this journey, there will not be anything left out that he was not able to redeem. He is able to save you to the uttermost. And then as if to encapsulate them all, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, and Paul's very, very upwardly theological prayer. He ends with this doxology. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we could ever ask, think, 
or imagine to him be glory in the church and forevermore. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly more. The disciples were unable, but Jesus is able. He is the maker of heaven and earth. And so he says, if I can, all things are possible to them that believe. And the man, whatever shred of faith he had left, he speaks out and he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And this short, brief prayer is, in my estimation, the prayer of the Christian life and walk. Why? Because our whole lives are a mix of faith and unbelief. All of our actions as believers in Jesus Christ are still a mix of faith and unbelief. And it is the accuser of the brethren, the enemy, the same one that wanted to destroy this young man that wants to come in and say to you that because there's any doubt at all, because there's any bit of unbelief, that that somehow counts you out. And yet here on this day, at this time, even with full confession of disbelief, This man and his son were not counted out. Perhaps the disciples in that moment may have remembered Jesus' other words when he said, what? If you had the faith even of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, remove yourself and be thrown into the sea and it shall be done. As evangelicals in the West, we have received Jesus' word on the subject and what have we done? We've got now our mustard seed sized rulers trying to measure our mustard seed sized faith to see if it measures up. But that's not the point of what Jesus was saying. You need to get out your God-sized ruler. Good luck. Because it's not about how much faith you have. That's what Jesus' point was. It wasn't about the amount of faith that you have. It was about the size of the God and the power of the God and the authority of the God and the compassion of the God that your faith, however little it might be, however minuscule it might be, you might need to get out a, a microscope, thank you. I knew it wasn't a telescope, that was too far away. Might have to get out a microscope, it might be microscopic faith. But if your faith is in the maker of heaven and earth, who knit together every single molecule and atom, and yet also made every galaxy in the universe, then it doesn't matter 
how microscopic your faith is as long as it is in the one who is able. Jesus is able. This is the prayer of the Christian life. It's a prayer that I entreat you to adopt, to pray regularly, to be honest with yourself and with the Lord about where you are at and when you come into those times of struggle where you don't know if you are able to stand on your own. Remember the promise of God that he is able to make you stand and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. In those times where you don't even know what it is that you need, but you know that you need something. Praise God. He has promised that he is able to do far more exceeding abundant beyond all that we could ask for or imagine and pray again, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We are always mixed with faith and unbelief. If we had no unbelief, we would not sin. We sin because we persist in unbelief. How do I know? Because I know that I sin when I believe that I will be happier doing or not doing what God has told me otherwise to do or not do. And you do the same. And at the root of all of our sin is the sin of unbelief. But where it is impossible for us to create faith and discard unbelief with God, nothing is impossible. And Jesus heals this boy in our text today, and he could because he is God. Jesus was not merely a man in submission to God, as some today would like to claim that he is, thereby saying that you should then be able to do all the things that Jesus did. Let me assure you, you cannot. You cannot because you are not God. And he could because he is. He is the God-man. And yet there are some things that he has gifted us and empowered us to do. And in this case, the disciples had cast out demons before, but this one they could not. Why could they not? And they were as troubled about it as we hopefully are. Why couldn't they cast this one out? They asked Jesus privately when they get into the house. Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Not saying, well, this was just one of those really wily demons. And if you had spent 3.5 more hours in prayer, then you would have been able to cast this demon out. Rather, he's saying, demons do not come out 
except by prayer, which means what? Except through communion with God, except through connection by the Spirit of God to God, except by and through His power. Why? Because when the disciples went out into the countryside and demons came out at their word, who was it that was casting the demons out? It was not the disciples. It was God. It was God's power. It was the power of God that was driving the evil spirits out of his people. Not the power of Andrew. Not the power of Philip. But when Andrew and Philip and Peter and James and John and all of the others were in communion with the Lord, when they were connected to him by prayer, then they were able to tell the demons what to do, and they listened. Not as those who were an authority in and of themselves, but rather as those who spoke with authority that had been granted to them. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. That mixer looks great on the counter. It's a really powerful tool. It does not work unless you plug it in. Seems like a simple illustration, but it's true. Unless a thing with great power is connected to a power source, that thing is useless. And it seems that the disciples were trying to cast out this demon in their own strength and in their own ability, not through faith in and by the authority of Christ, but rather by faith in themselves, somehow thinking that they were something that they were not. In just two sections, I think that will become even more apparent as they argue amongst themselves, asking, who is the greatest? Can we just answer that question right now? The greatest is Jesus. And the one who came down the mountain that day is the same one who created the world, who parted the Red Sea, who brought water in a dry land and manna from heaven. It's the same one who delivered his people over and over and over again. Jesus came in with a track record and his track record was flawless. And he is the one who promised his people deliverance. And as Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23 tells us, he who promised is faithful.
Jesus is able and Jesus is faithful. What we need is faith in the one who is able and faithful. Unbelief and doubt can come from many different places. It can come through disappointment. It can come through disillusionment. It can come through unrepentant sin. As we persist in sin, faith grows weak. But when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He has promised to be with us. He who promised has promised to be with us. And he has given us means of grace that we can submit ourselves to the preaching of his word, prayer, the Lord's Supper, the fellowship of the saints. And if we excommunicate ourselves from those means of grace, we will find ourselves in a very dry and thirsty land. Even still, in those moments, remember that he is the one who brought water in the wilderness. And he will not say to you who says in the wilderness, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Yes, see what you did there? Well, you made your bed, now lie in it. Instead, he who promised is faithful and he is able to make all grace abound to you. He will meet you where you are. He will. He does. So let us come to the one who has promised that he would in no wise cast out anyone who comes to him and let us find the grace that we need let us find the God who is able let us find the one who is faithful even when we are faithless scripture tells us he remains faithful and lift up a very simple prayer to him a prayer that sometimes is all you can say Lord I believe Help my unbelief and find the God who is able. Amen? Would you stand with me as we pray today? Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. May your spirit do now what no man can do and not let this word return void. God, there are many of us who struggle with doubt and unbelief. Let me rephrase, God, all of us struggle with doubt and unbelief. There is not a day that goes by that is not mixed for us in faith and unbelief. So Lord, together as a congregation today, even as we come to the table, we may be plagued with doubt. Yet, God, may you by your spirit cause us to rise up in faith and say, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. May we find that you are waiting for us all. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. God bless you as we move into a time of communion. Family, come right now to communion. Prepare our hearts through our confession of belief as we throw our seeing creed. It's available to stand out close to all the day. 